now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 12 of our drug season, Just Science speaks to Dr. Paul Speaker from West Virginia University about the economic burden our justice system has from opioid deaths. They are estimating that the crime labs alone are spending around $270 million a year just on the opioid crisis. Laboratory budgets are not growing fast enough to handle this drain on resources. Listen along as Just Science delves into the data of the opioid crisis. This episode will conclude the FTCOE's season on drugs. Would you like to view more drug-related content or even ask the experts some questions? Please visit ForensicCOE.org to learn more about Dr. Barry Logan's three-part series titled Best Practices Guidance for Advancing Research Initiatives and Combating the Synthetic Drug Epidemic. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today we are with an old friend uh, who's been on the program before, Dr. Paul Speaker from West Virginia University. Paul, uh, I look on myself as a bit of a refugee from the scientific community, helping out forensic science, starting off in materials work and then getting into uh, criminal justice things. And Paul is uh, something of a refugee from business school and uh, helping in forensic science and doing some amazing work. Paul, thank you for being on the program. Oh, my pleasure to be here. We're actually at the uh, American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors meeting in Atlanta and talking to a bunch of folks here about their presentations. One of Paul's presentations here at ASCLAD is the economic impact of the opioid crisis on forensic laboratories and related entities. And just to remind folks to make sure they kind of get the grounding here, one of the uh, reasons why you're able to assess uh, the impact on crime laboratories of the opioid crisis is because you have this rich foresight data set on which to base that. Yeah, we're actually 10 years in to Project Foresight. So uh, for folks that are not familiar with Project Foresight, and, and I encourage anybody listening, if your laboratory is not participating, you may want to uh, consider this and contact us. But this is a project that was envisioned out of our Forensic Science Initiative at West Virginia University by Max Houck. And Max one of the things that he really noticed is that typical to all of forensic science is people who are elevated to positions of management didn't necessarily get there because of their inherent business skills. It's because they were very good scientists and continued to get elevated and people trusted them. They had some leadership skills in there and they got thrust into these positions. And while many have gone on to earn an MBA or take you know, various classes along the way, it was not a general kind of training or education that people had. And he said, you know, I really think we can do something to help. And so we had followed up a European study, Quadrupole, which looked with four laboratories. But we collect data on casework, on personnel, and on expenditures and try to combine it to give good business metrics that a laboratory can look to, one, compare themselves to others, and even to compare themselves across time. And in particular, 
you know, identify potential problems or red flags at least to know where to look and to assess whether changes are working. So it's been a fun project. We have 139, I'll say, lab systems involved because some of those have several laboratories. So if you were looking at something like the census of publicly funded crime labs, be two, over 200 of those labs. So almost half of the US representation fits in there. And then we have representation from actually laboratories on six different continents. OK. No, that's very, very impressive. It's a very impre impressive data set. And, and it's very cool to see kind of the, just how rich the data has become. I mean, you know, I was just looking at this beforehand and some of the slides that you gave to the group showing even at the individual discipline level how much it costs on average to do a case and some very good numbers there. When you see a lot of the works that are out there in the literature and there's some excellent things and we'll talk a bit about a few of those today, most things have concentrated more on the outcomes side of things rather than the input side of things and we're able to provide some connections there. You know, for example, very, very basic things in economic theory will explain differences between laboratories. That a smaller state or a smaller lab, you know, uh, representing a county or something locally, should not be compared on a performance level with, say, a large statewide laboratory because they're just natural economic forces that are going to explain some differences in, in performance there. So we try to get a, out of our rich set of data to be able to give an appropriate comparison. So if you are doing, say, you know, 500 DNA uh, samples a year, we don't want to compare you to somebody who's doing 10,000. Right. Because we just know it's going to react differently. There's, there's a lot of uh, extreme fixed costs involved from capital, and it's going to cost you more uh, with the smaller lab. But it doesn't mean you're not doing it well. And we try to find what are the appropriate comparisons. Well, yeah, and even fixed costs at the individual level. I mean, a person needs a certain level of training regardless of what their caseload is. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the data. You see, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it in terms of a, a, a spline. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, what we would look at. And I've taught at the collegiate level now for 40 years. Okay. And so when I was a graduate student teaching, and you would teach microeconomic theory, the theory of the firm, we have, when we look at cost curves, so what does it cost to do something? And what you find in every single industry, every kind of production endeavor uh, there might be, producing goods, services, whatever it would be, is average costs feature what is known as a U-shaped curve. So if you can think of big U that's out there is that as your activity increases, you're, you're going on the downside of the U. What that U part is measuring is the average cost. So your average costs are going to go down, and that's what we refer to as economies of scale. But eventually, you can get too big. So if you can think of you know, an enterprise that got so big that either people are bumping into each other or the distance that you have to travel to move things within a facility, it's ineffective that you'd be better off with another facility at that point to be able to be as, as operationally efficient as possible. So we know this is true everywhere. In the for-profit sector, which is first however many decades of my career was looking at that, mm -hmm. you don't see it. We know it to be true, but if your cost is higher than everybody else, we're going to knock you out of business in a right. for-profit world. But here, it's not an economic market that's doing things. It's a political jurisdiction. And the jurisdiction is the size that it is. 
and in the state of West Virginia. We are not competing with the laboratories in Southern California, per se. Their population is much larger, and they're going to have a much bigger volume of cases. But it doesn't mean that we're not efficient for that size. And so what we try to do is to use our data to give us a sense of what is possible for the size of the jurisdiction and the caseload, population, crime rates, those types of things feeding in there. And we want to say, how is your performance relative to that size? And it, it gives us a lot of very, very good information. And it's really kind of cool. What you uh, were teaching 40 years ago is true in forensic science. They're classic U curves. To be fair, the, the largest labs aren't the right-hand side of the U is kind of flattened out a little bit. Right. But there's still uh, an increase in costs in most of these curves as yeah. you get to larger labs. Is that true within systems as well? Does it help with the laboratory systems that you're looking sure. at when they break up into regional labs? Yeah, and what we found there is, and we'll be recognizing some of these laboratories uh, tomorrow at the awards, that there are good ways to be able to do it, to try to split that up. You know, Should you have it all ingrained in a single system where you have so much central control or should you break things out? And we've seen that, in fact, in some consulting we've done with uh, other countries to take a look at what their system, and invariably what you find, and I know this is going to be shocking, <laughs> is that decisions that are made for a political reason, we need a laboratory in this region, in this region, because we're satisfying some member of the legislative body. Like post offices. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Those are often poor decisions. And if you really take a look at the volume of activity, you can come up with an ideal framework for it. And, and we've been able to look at that and get some considerable cost savings. Where at, you know, in cost savings, what it really means is you're able to generate more output, handle more cases, get more throughput, and still maintain quality uh, with that, but for a lot less money. So you said a, a word that uh, we're, we're all interested in because we all want an award. So what awards are you giving out here at ASCLAD? Well, I'm not giving out, but uh, ASCLAD's as, giving ASCLAD out. is recognizing. Yep. So there are three groups that they're going to recognize this year. I'm just very, very pleased to see this. But it's for participants in the Foresight Project. So we began with, I think it was 17 laboratories that help us define the project. And that included, you know, what do we mean by a case? But when we had 17 laboratories in the room, we had 17 different definitions. So one of the groups we're recognizing are our founders, the people who came up with a language that, from my perspective as a business person, it didn't matter. It just mattered that they agreed and everybody used the same definitions. And so they went through a lot of work to create this. So we will recognize the founders. We'll also recognize the new entries into the uh, Foresight Project. And it's fun this year because I've got Kazakhstan's National Laboratory coming oh. in. I'm working with the Swedish National Lab now and the state of Virginia. You know, so you, okay. you have a real mixture. We'll recognize those. And then the last award, what I've suggested to call it the Maximus Award, and partly that's my tip of the cap to Max Hauk, who had the original <laughs> idea. I thought it was <laughs> Max not has so a big subtle. enough head already. You're it, naming just, an award after him now. What are we going to do with it? Well, I want people to understand <laughs> that this was my decision. I, it was a surprise to him. So, okay, so sure. this was not uh, Max's ego pushing it. In fact, I think he was a little embarrassed by it. But, I mean, he had such a good idea. But these are the laboratories where we put them into our model and we look at how do they appear relative to what would be the most efficient for their 
jurisdictional size. Sure. And these are all laboratories that perform over the 90th percent level, you know, looking across the board at the mixture. You'd be hard-pressed to find that many firms, say, in the private sector that are also able to do that on a consistent basis. So these are very, very high performers, and I'm looking forward to recognizing them, that they've submitted the data, they've used the data, in some cases to make changes and improve. Others have come in, and it's a real tribute to the leadership and the management that they've had in those laboratories. But it'll be nice to publicly recognize them. So is the list public? Yes, it'll be public. and Definitely have to do a link to the list. Yeah, please do that, because these are also great laboratories for you know, somebody looking at, you know, how is this beneficial to them? They're also good folks to be able to talk to, to say, well, what have you done? What have you gotten out of this? And sure. that's part of the message of Project Foresight from the beginning is not to tell people what to do, but to find things that are working and spread the news that this was a very successful aspect or to have mentors in the industry. And forgive me for calling forensic science laboratories as an industry, but you know, what other name can I come up with? But you are providing a great service, and, mm-hmm. you know, those providing a similar service is, is what we would look at as an industry, not just, it's not just product. I am not <laughs> among those who consider economics the dismal science. Oh, it so. is the dismal science. It's, uh, of course, that's an 18th century term. <laughs> yes. It's really interesting that you're getting international, especially in a place like Kazakhstan, which of course, has some significant rule of law issues and, and that kind of thing. And I, I think there's value in general with respect to forensic science in these countries because I think it has a very positive role to play in improving the rule of law in some of the countries where that's a challenge. Yeah, and the two countries that I just mentioned as new entries, the Kazakhstan one is coming out of a World Bank grant to assist them as they're trying to overhaul their justice system. So you you have a number of these, you know, the former Soviet republics being a good example, that in gaining their independence, there are a lot of things that they had to set up and be able to do. We've seen this, you know, was one of the things that was observed after uh, the Arab Spring, is a number of difficulties in some of the countries that infrastructure improvements. And all we're trying to do is to assist with that, to say, look, here's some good things that you can track what's going on, and it's very helpful, and you can compare yourself to a worldwide standard. So that's where they saw, they saw some of our publications. In the case of the European Union, we built foresight on the quadrupole study from 2002 and 2003, and they gave us the model. And as they were, are currently working on a nine, you know, national laboratories getting involved to redo the study, we met with the project managers from Sweden's national lab and talk to them and and emphasize you don't need to reinvent the wheel if you don't want to. If you would just like to join our study, we would be happy to have you. In 10 years, we have not charged laboratories Mm -hmm. to be involved. We really want their data, and we rely on some of our grant work to be able to put the results out there. That's taking care of the expenses of being able to provide the individual analysis. So closer to home. We have something that just about everybody who's listening has heard of, the opioid crisis, which has been uh, a real challenge for the country and certainly a challenge for crime laboratories. Pretty bad picture for the country. I mean, we have a lot more drug overdose deaths or drug overdose-related deaths today than we've had in a very, very long time. And we have the recent report at the end of last year, you know, kind of giving a picture of the full impact of that in the country. So let's, let's talk about, about that. I mean, one of the things that, that you're, you're starting off point is 
there is this issue out there that's out there in society, almost every issue like that is going to impact on crime laboratory operations. We're going to have to be able to deal with that. And it's not over yet, is it? It's growing at such a rapid rate. The White House reports of the Council of Economic Advisors in November of 2017 issued their report, and the numbers were staggering. They were almost 600% higher uh, at the cost of the opioid crisis for one year, 600% higher than prior estimates. So you were talking, in their case, 2.2% of gross domestic product. Uh, that's a staggering figure. And the big difference that they had, we're not just talking about you know, addiction treatment or health care costs that they would have in there, but also you know, the cost to the entire justice system mm -hmm. uh, being included in there from you know, police work that you would have through the laboratories to the court systems, uh, jailing, pr imprisonment, all of those kinds of things. But the big difference in what they added was the cost from opioid deaths. Mm -hmm. So if you think of what happens when you know, society loses that person, and we're just talking about the lost earnings aspect mm -hmm. of this. How, you know, how can you value a human life? It's very, very difficult. So we're simply talking about what was lost mm -hmm. by that person being lost to society, and what the productivity would mean, and what the activity would be for the economies. So at 2.2% of GDP for one year, that is such a ginormous amount. Sure. And then we went a little bit further, and, and of course, you know, I'm at West Virginia University, and West Virginia is probably as severe a problem as we have anywhere, and certainly in terms of opioid deaths. So the death rate that we have is staggering. And it's really extraordinary because it's comparable now in terms of numbers to the AIDS epidemic at its height. It's also young people like it was it's in the AIDS young epidemic. young people and it's bigger than anything that we've yeah. seen. So when I look at an opioid state, not necessarily West Virginia, but just if you were to take the 10 states with the highest rate of opioid deaths, so I've selected one of those. This is one of the key things with four states. We always keep everybody anonymous, so, so anybody can think that this is their state, but I will, I will not review sure. it. Sure. Well, you have 139 lab systems in your data set, yes. so it could be just about anywhere. Yeah, so when you look at that, I had an economist from the state estimate that this is costing 15% of gross state product, 15% of their overall productivity from this single activity. So it's staggering how big it is. But what I wanted to be able to take a look at here is to put that into perspective, what that cost would be, is what is it doing to the laboratories? And were we getting out of the White House report, while the magnitude, $504 billion in one year, I think it's understating the severity of the problems through the labs. And we go through in this, in this process an estimate, uh, one using our, our Foresight Labs, Secondly, going to additional laboratories that report in the census of publicly funded crime labs. And third, making an estimate for those labs that did not report. And when we took those together, just the laboratory portion of this. Now, does this include crime labs and medical examiner offices as well, or? Just crime labs. Just crime labs, okay. So the medical examiners, I don't have that data, but just the crime lab portion where the White House was estimating the cost to the entire justice system, from policing all the way through imprisonment, was just under $8 billion in one year. Mm -hmm. What we were shown is just for the crime labs, which would have been a relatively small portion of that, 
we're estimating that in one year was about $270 million, much higher than they would have anticipated in there. So the suggestions are rather severe on the drain on the budget. But where it shows up even more in the laboratory is if a laboratory has to start diverting resources, laboratory budgets aren't growing at the rate. Right. Just the average laboratory, not the crisis states, the average laboratory in the U.S., it's the growth in expenditures towards opioid investigations, whether it be drug chemistry or toxicology or whatever. It's going up by about 8% per year. Their budgets aren't growing by 8%. That means there's a drain on other things. If I'm going to spend more time looking at opioid-related issues, it means less time, less energy, less resources can investigate other problem areas that, that are coming to the lab. Let's just make sure we get this right. So just from the opioid epidemic alone, the base cost of forensic science is going up 8% a year, yes. independent of any other variables. Yes. Not just the toxic drugs area, but the entirety. So in other words, the, what we're doing in controlled substances is going to be way bigger in terms of the year-over-year -year increase. Yeah. In terms of what's being observed. This isn't like a theory. This is your actual, this is actually this, uh, the uh, data. Observation. When I looked at uh, from 2011 through 2016, the one opioid crisis state that I looked at, its expenditures for opioid-related activity tripled. Wow. Tripled in that five-year period. And for the median laboratory in the country, just looking at all of them, it went up by about two-thirds. So you're talking about a drain on resources here. So it means you have to delay other things or not do other things. You, you know, it's, I can't do that expensive case that I have over here for some undrug-related crime. Sure. Uh, or it gets delayed. Are you able to tease out some of the other issues here? So there are two that come to mind. Let's start with the first one would be that's a rapid increase. It would be very difficult to achieve economies of scale that quickly. And you might also be getting onto the other end of the U-curve, right? So are laboratories becoming more efficient or less efficient in how they're dealing with these cases as they're coming through? Well, this is the irony. So I, I started looking at this and, again, thinking about that U-shaped curve. So when I first looked at the opioid states, the first result I got is their cost per case was going down. It was like, whoa, you know, I hadn't really thought about it at first, but what was happening, that was just the nature of economic forces. They were doing a larger volume, so the cost per case that they were looking at was declining. But the, when you look at productivity, you also got an increase in productivity. So what was coming out of the laboratories with this increased emphasis in this area, they were able to process, say, more samples you know, per person in a given period of time than they had previously. So that was, you know, assisting with the declining cost was this increase in productivity. But then when you go to the total expense, the total expense was rising dramatically. And sure. And so there are natural economic forces. There were very strong positive reactions by personnel within the laboratories. They were doing, you know, a great deal of work and even more work in a given period of time than they had done previously. Part of that is the natural part, and part of it is, is the effort that they have coming in and you know, well-run laboratories. But the pressure's on them to you know, hire more. I know in, in my own state, mm -hmm. we had uh, last fall, a, our attorney general gave the laboratory an extra million dollars uh, because their turnaround time was falling you know, further and further and further 
you know, from what it had been historically because of the drain on the lab system. You know, that was great to be able to have something to be able to deal with this and to be able to move things through the laboratory and people spending less time perhaps in, in uh, jail who uh, were not in fact guilty and processing things through the system for those that were. So very, very important, but it's going to have to keep up at that pace. I think this issue, this crisis alone, would justify all of the work that's gone into foresight by yourself and all the crime laboratories. What you're saying is very, very powerful because, you know, there's one thing to go to your legislature or whomever and say, yeah, we're having this big crisis, we need more money. It's quite another to go back and say, look at the data, okay? As you're saying, the average lab is having to spend two-thirds more but they're also showing that they're becoming more efficient. And so it isn't, it isn't merely that they're overwhelmed. They are working this as hard as they can. Uh, there's a choice, really, because there's only so much you can do on the cost curve to deal with it. If they're going to process it, they're going to need to have very specific resources. And the foresight data can say, hey, this is where we're at and this is where we need to be. Yeah, it's really looking at the dynamics and then being able to use it to forecast where we're going to be. And so if trends continue, you know, what are the resources? So the, always want to emphasize the dynamic aspect of this is that if you look at one particular year, which is what we had in most analyses that you get are going to do that, including the White House report concentrated on the data for the one particular year, although it certainly suggested the dynamics, is can we begin to talk about what's the funding that would be needed to be able to deal with this in the coming years. You know, that's part of Project Foresight, is to try to arm laboratories and laboratory management and legislative bodies with good information to say, here's what's happening here. Uh, our hope on the opioid issue is to point out, this is what it costs you if you get to this point. So if you are looking at where funding needs to go, yes, it does need to go to the laboratories, to the justice system, to deal with this, but when you begin to compare it to you know, the mental health costs, mm -hmm. what happens if we can deal with addiction much, much earlier before it gets to the criminal justice system? You know, how do you make policy? What are the things that you want to look at? Wouldn't you rather to be able to treat you know, the mental illness aspect of it much earlier mm -hmm. and put somebody back as a productive member of society so that they're able to deal with whatever those addictive issues are, you know, and not have the deaths. Sure. And, and not have police arresting people, and not have the court system tied up with these cases, and not have the laboratories working incredible hours to try to find this through, and not overcrowding all of our prisons. But you need the information to really be able to weigh what those decisions are. And while we don't tell policymakers, do this or do that, what we want them to understand is, here's what we're experiencing and here's where we see things going. Yeah, one of our other podcasts was on drug courts, which attempt to connect all that together, really take a much broader view of drug offenders. So the other thing that comes to mind, there's the push and the pull of it. So, and I don't know whether you can, get, you can drill down into the data this far. So I assume that a lot more labs are doing some contracting of these cases. Uh, are you able to look at that strategy and other strategies in particular and isolate which ones are being used and, and the value of different strategies for dealing with the issue? We can. Because of the casework data that we collect, it'll look at uh, you know, how many requests are coming in, how many cases come in the door. Mm -hmm. It'll look at how many items are submitted with those, 
how many of those items are outsourced? So we can pick, a, although we've not looked at that issue. I mean, there's so many <laughs> yeah. different issues that we have to choose from. And of course, opioids are one of many that fit within there and, and one that's really come to a head over this past year in terms of concentration with that. So we have not looked at that, but certainly the data permits you to begin to look at those strategies. It looks at strategies even from within those things that you're testing and sampling. And we get great anecdotal stories about this of what, how is this laboratory versus that laboratory attempting to deal with the volume that they have coming through or suggestive of internal policies that they have or even you know, state regulation. Legally, what are they required to be able to do and to be able to feed those things back? And that's the great thing about data mm -hmm. is it's there and you can look at it and you can see what happens with various changes and, and certainly put a lot of things out there. Sometimes you can talk about causality and other times simply the correlation, but there's no denying the correlation. The other issue, and we just did a, a podcast here at Ask Lad, which will uh, be released with, uh, with Barry Logan, and he was talking about some of this, and it raises a, another issue, which is that the opioid crisis is different from some other drug crises we've had, like the crack cocaine epidemic and things like that, in the sense that it's not one drug, right? And this is a real problem for the forensic laboratories and how they deal with it, because the fentanyl analogs are evolving every day. I mean, we're seeing new synthetics that, frankly, only some of the most sophisticated labs are even able to pick up. And that is going to imply not only that the case loads are going to go up, but in many cases, the complexity is going to go up. And very differently from state to state, lab to lab, I'd love to know whether we'll be able to ever tease that out and really get a good picture for labs to be able to, to kind of trace that issue as well. At one of the presentations yesterday was really talking about that issue from the toxicologist standpoint and you know what equipment do they have and the degree of sophistication that they need to have that you know using some traditional techniques they weren't picking things up. Mm -hmm. going to some alternatives that they didn't necessarily have that they were testing out, they were able to find some of these things, and it's tough. I mean, sure, you, yeah. you look at this and think, wow, you know, so what is this going to do? Or the dangers to first responders. Or, sure. I mean, we get the question about canine units, where you've gone through and you've trained drug-sniffing dogs that you can't do this because it's fatal, you know, what, right. that, the, that the handlers... Yeah have to have the Narcan with them just to be able to revive their dog. So the complexities that that's introduced, you know, when and then going to, say, a car fentanyl where, you know, how explosive the dangers are that are attached there, while we won't see it directly in looking at this item or that, we'll see it in terms of the expenditures. You know, overall, what does it cost surrounding this or how much does it slow things down on the process because of the extra safety precautions that need to be in mm -hmm. with this? And it's systemic. It's not just the laboratory. What does it take for, you know, again, from first responders all the way through? It's scary. And then, of course, you have so many uh, individual stories that you get that are, you know, true horror stories about, you know, innocent, you know, the, the mother that comes in after the child has overdosed to clean up the room and gets poisoned by the residue. Oh, and, my gosh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, those are just such scary things and, and all things that keep elevating what, you know, some of the expenses that we're seeing and the ones outside the system that we'd be looking for. story that comes to mind, fortunately, was not a tragic one, 
at an early uh, experiment with carfentanil in the horse racing industry, whether they could use it to calm down the horse. And, and one of the things they did was they used a, um, a syringe that had carfentanil in it, but then they rinsed it out so it would be the blank, and then they put another one in that was the actual carfentanil. And when they injected the blank, there was not a whole lot of carfentanil in there, but it was enough to not put down the horse completely, but to have the horse actually like faint away and was not revived for you know, hours from that. And that's a horse, okay, yeah. with yeah. trace amounts of carfentanil. So these are very, very powerful compounds. And, and I have no idea, frankly, where the end in sight is. Yeah. And forensic laboratories are going to have to, um, you know, deal with both the safety issues and some of these operational challenges for quite some time. Yeah, I do not envy folks that are working in that arena, you know. And we just see from a number standpoint, so I am not in harm's way on any sure, of these yeah. things, but I am terrified by some of the numbers that you see, and you realize what laboratories and everybody else in the system are having to deal with. Is there an easy way or a straightforward way for a laboratory to examine their current trends using the foresight data and determine where their workforce needs are going to be going forward? Well, and that's, that's a conversation that we've been having on with respect to workforce needs we can tease it out of the data. So we can look at what it is, and, and in particular with respect to this sense of, you know, what are the economies of scale involved, and also to look at, at a concept known as elasticity, where we can see when you make certain changes, how elastic, what kind of response you're going to get. So elasticity, just anticipating what that's going to be. So we're currently working on that, particularly with respect to workforce. You know, it's a question that we get from several different arenas. What are we going to need going down the road? And, and in fact, some of our conversations that we have in other areas where there's significant backlog, you know, getting some of those same questions from the GAO, wanting to know, okay, what can the data tell us? And it's pretty good at helping to take a look at this because we've hit such a, a high volume of participants that there's a lot that we can see and trends that we can observe with it. No, it's fantastic, and I, I hope policymakers really come to appreciate the foresight data. I think it's, I've never seen data like it in any other public sector area. Are you familiar with any other place where this rich data set has, has yeah, been able you, to? You'll find them? things in which there are some very, very good pockets, uh, certainly in the public health side. Okay. You find a number of those things. So I did a little bit of work with the Association of Public Health Labs, and they're great at, as an organization to be able to gather things conduct research and tr try to figure out a, a lot of things by providing annual you know, pieces of, of information on data. In fact, part of our conversation with respect to the opioid deaths has been with some folks from the CDC mm. and from public health to try to say, you know, can we try to call things the same? Can we try to collect them in a standardized fashion so that what we're getting from toxicology and the forensic labs and what they're getting from medical examiners and coroners and what they're getting from public health that we're getting the same things, that it's rich, that we're filling in the gaps for each other. So I know there are some other efforts out there, but it, it takes a lot. And again, it was to, to see somebody, and we'll make sure Max isn't listening to this, but <laughs> Max put on earmuffs, but uh, really quite a vision that mm -hmm. he had for this, to see what this could be. And we've been fortunate that others have worked really well with us along the way, ASCLAD being a great partner, NIJ in general, in mm -hmm. funding it to begin with. The uh, Center of Excellence is keeping this alive by mm -hmm. uh, working with us on that. And so it's been a community effort with this. And for me, it's just been it's kind of interesting for somebody who's 
career for the first third of it was entirely looking at similar issues mm -hmm. on efficiency with the banking sector. And you'd be surprised at how closely aligned these are, that what I learned in banking. You know, if you think of forensics, in here you've got the small county lab coexisting with these large, you know, national laboratories that we have. They're in the same business. Sure. They don't do all the same functions. But if you think about that in banking, that's what we observed, is you can go and there'll be a small community bank, and then we've got, uh, you know, a J.P. Morgan, right. know, Chase Bank. They coexist, and big regional, but you have all kinds of things, but they do different functions. So it turns out that a lot of what I learned in studying the banking sector is a very, very close fit here. Or another issue, economies of scope. Mm -hmm. How many things should any one laboratory be doing? And when should they instead have a correspondent relationship, say, with a, a larger laboratory? It doesn't make sense for us to have our own, say, question documents section. We don't have that many cases, but we have some where we need this. Wouldn't it be better to outsource that activity or to have a, uh, a regional facility? A regional facility or something of that sort that you can work with and be able to maintain efficiencies. That's what we get to study, are those things. And for me, I find it every bit as fascinating here as I did you know, in the early part of my career, except the difference here is the results you get to see much faster. Right. And that part is, is very, very rewarding to me. Well, I certainly appreciate the fact that we were fortunate to have a refugee from the economics <laughs> and business schools here in forensic science, and uh, we certainly appreciate you being on the Just Science podcast, Paul. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for sharing some very important data with us today. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. Thank and for the, for the listeners of Just Science, thank you for listening in today. And please uh, give us a top rating on your uh, podcast platform of choice and give us a great review and tell your friends and colleagues to listen in and learn more about what's going on in forensic science and among the, the leaders in innovation and practice. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for the next season of Just Science. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>